he won't talk to anyone. Never has. But I think he might speak with you. So why don't you sit down with him and say all the things you must be longing to say? Come with us and let us help you free yourself. Please. Time's up. I'll accept my payment. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Lane. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. Halloween rolls on today, and we are at episode 142. What are we talking about? We are talking about Halloween from 2018, directed by David Gordon Green and written by Green, Jeff Fradley, and Danny McBride. Now, though this is the 11th installment in the film franchise, it's what the filmmakers call here a recalibration. It takes place 40 years after the events of the first original 1978 film directed by John Carpenter. And it stars Jamie Lee Curtis, Judy Greer, Andy Matichek, Will Patton, Nick Castle, and James Jude Courtney. We catch up with Laurie Strode 40 years later, and we see the devastation that the events from 1978 have wrought on her life, and by extension her families, her daughter Karen and granddaughter Allison. Michael Myers is 61, and he escapes during a transfer to another institution and returns to Haddonfield on Halloween night 2018. So far, it is the highest grossing film in the series, and there are two planned sequels, Halloween Kills and Halloween Ends. Halloween Kills was supposed to come out this year, but it's set for October 2021 now. John Carpenter said he signed on as executive producer to try to make this film as scary as possible, to make it as good as he could. He wanted to get Michael Myers back to that root of being sort of a force of nature, almost supernatural in his words, but Danny McBride talked about humanizing the character, moving him away from some being that couldn't be killed, which kind of almost seems like cross-purposes. I do really respond, though, to McBride's intention to be so horrified by something that was going to come in and destroy your entire world. And I'm also glad to say that Carpenter is back for the soundtrack. This time he's got his son Cody and family friend Daniel Davies. So what was your initial impression about David Gordon Green and Danny McBride getting involved? And do you feel like you changed your mind after seeing the film one way or the other? Well, when it comes to David Gordon Green, I am definitely coming at this from the art house side of things. I was a fan of his right out of the gate. I was really taken with George Washington, especially, and then all the real girls. And I still have to see both of those. And I think I was, like a lot of other people, a little taken by surprise by this left turn into comedy once he was a few years into his career. But that's on us, though. I think it's a silly thing that we sometimes do as film fans to pigeonhole someone like that. I like Pineapple Express a lot, actually, and part of what makes that movie special is that you can see those lyrical 
Malick influence touches peek through here and there in this absurd stoner comedy. Sometimes it's in a camera setup. Sometimes it's in Franco's and Rogan's relationship, but there's a tenderness to an interaction or a slow-mo sequence that sets it apart from everything else like it. I thought hurricane season was over. <laughs> and then when you watch his other work with Danny McBride, particularly Eastbound and Down. Which I'm a huge fan of too. Yeah, you realize that we would have been cheated out of a whole lot of funny stuff if Green had felt obligated to continue just delivering nothing but these minor key indie dramas. And you can definitely feel Danny McBride's sense of humor here and there in Halloween. I am really glad they continue to work together. Were you concerned coming in that they were going to make something just completely unacceptable? And I ask that question specifically because you adore Halloween. I didn't think so, and it's already strayed so far afield in the sequels before this that I really wasn't thinking about it, and I thought they were coming to it as genuine fans. I knew they were skilled, and so I wasn't that worried about it. And Carpenter's blessing and participation was really important to me, too. I don't know if it goes as far as passing the torch, but I like that it extends Carpenter's legacy a little more. And really, as much as I love the original, we can't be too precious about it because it was originally intended to just be a cheap vehicle to kill babysitters. Now, how about Bloomhouse, the production company? Do you have a feeling about them one way or the other in terms of their overall output? I've liked others of their films, but I guess I have a bit of a sense of them being too pop horror. <clears throat> their output, I think of it as maybe 50-50. Maybe that's too generous, actually. Maybe 30-70. There are some titles that I like quite a bit, and they're probably the same. We probably have those in common. I bet. Paranormal Activity, is that one of yes. yours? Yes. And then Get Out, obviously. Yes, definitely. Sinister with Ethan Hawke. I really like his turn in these small genre horror films. And then Creep, even though I'm not a huge fan of Mark Duplass, I really like Creep. That's on my Halloween viewing list for this year. The huge thing I like is that I think Jason Bloom is definitely a genre fan. And he gives the creators of these films such free reign to make what they want. He feels like he's doing it for the right reasons, generally, if you can say that of any film executive. Everyone involved in this, it seems like, was keen on striking the right balance of old and new, reverence for the original and mapping out new territory. Even the font is back in the credits, even down to the detail of the jack-o'-lantern in the credits having that slit in the side of its nose, which, if you love the original like I do, you've seen that a million times. It's burned into your brain. Well, I think you really hit the nail on the head with the right reasons. And I'm glad that everybody came back for this, the ones that we really wanted to see, and then the injection of new blood. No pun intended. <laughs> so are you ready to get into the movie? Yeah, let's do it. By the way, this movie made me sweat so hard in the movie theater, I was stuck to the cloth chair afterwards at the very end. So we begin with the podcasters. A couple of investigative journalists are coming back to the original story. They want to investigate Michael. They want to try to understand why. And so they are at the institution. They meet his current doctor, the new Loomis, as we begin to understand. I might have a bone to pick with that as far as who is performing what function, but go ahead. Okay. Yes, everything is not as it appears. But really, they are reiterating that idea that Loomis's diagnosis was that Michael Myers is just pure evil. There's nothing more to find. He should be destroyed, essentially. 
They take a big gamble right away, and this is an incredibly eerie scene. He's in the yard, he's chained to the ground with other prisoners, and they sense that something is up. They know that he's different, and the podcaster pulls out the mask as everyone else reacts. He demands for Michael to say something as the music crashes in. This is a dead man. We know that right away, right? You have to. The fact that he doesn't is pretty terrifying. So as we watch those familiar credits come up, did we think way back in 1978 that we would want to see Laurie Strode at 60? Does it feel appropriate now somehow or not appropriate? In 1978, I don't think I did, but I was eight years old. So what did I know? That's not how these films were originally thought of, I don't think. They felt pretty disposable at the time, especially once you get past the big titles. The majority of everything that came in that second wave, that copycat cash-in wave, they certainly were not made with posterity in mind. But it really is a credit to the original story that, of course, we want to now figure out how we get from final girl to final woman. And we're big proponents, you and I, of the value and impact of experience in a character. We're probably in the minority, and the majority of horror will always be for and about adolescents and young adults. But I've really been enjoying this trend lately, or at least in the things that we're watching, of mature women leading the charge and being the authority in horror in the past few years. We mentioned Terrified previously as a great example of that. Whatever you thought of Terminator, Dark Fate, it certainly piqued my interest when I saw that Linda Hamilton was coming back. And then here, maybe the most important example of this in genre film, Jamie Lee is certainly one of the blueprints for both aspects of this, the innocence and the experience. She was one of the first and best. And so now with her return, it's evolved into a completely new idea. I certainly didn't know coming into this that this was going to be a story I had been waiting for. It feels so necessary because of the way that they pulled it off, a necessary story to be told right now, one that explores the consequences of violence in a deep and very real way. So as the podcasters are making their way to meet Lori for the first time, to see what the girl has become... They're talking about these issues. Has one monster created another? Because we realize that they know some of Lori's story, what's happened after 1978. And we see her house. There's barbed wire, security gates, no access, cameras everywhere. Compound more than house, I would say. Absolutely. But 3000 bucks gets them in to see her. So what do we think about their quest to have everything make sense, or at least to discern some specific pathology. Do we need to understand Michael or those like him? Let me just say, podcasters, yuck. <laughs> it's a Definitely. great choice. Don't turn the cameras on them. For victims. And I don't give these podcasters that much credit as investigative journalists. To me, they're the biggest exploitation element of the film. Their motives are impure. Their methods are illegitimate. To me, they don't seem interested in contributing to the larger conversation about this. They want notoriety. It is a nice touch, I think, that they are from elsewhere. It gives them a bit of a cultural buffer, perhaps, and it excuses them slightly for not fully understanding the forces that they are messing with. 
And we should say that everything that came after 1978 has been eliminated, essentially, in this story. They think Michael's possibly unaware. They underestimate him. They provoke him with the mask, like you said. And I love that scene, how he senses the mask. They just don't get it. And then when they go to Laurie's, this bit about journalists don't pay for their interviews. Who are they kidding? This is just more evidence of how green they are, or at least... He is, the male half of that partnership. And how they don't realize how tabloid they are either, because then they lie to her. I showed him the mask. That's not exactly true. He never saw it. And it's obvious she knows so much better than them, and she will not be used as bait. It feels very reductive to me, but at the same time kind of understandable. And bear with me, I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story. So years and years ago, I was speaking with a therapist because I was trying to get a handle proactively for once on the experience of having been stalked previous to that. Because every other time was kind of a reaction. Something would happen and I would need to deal with it. And like I said, I was trying to move forward proactively, but honestly, I was seeing this person because something unpleasant had happened at my school. So it just happened that I went on a day right after an old man had driven through a Santa Monica farmer's market. He had his foot on the accelerator when he thought he had it on the brake. I was completely devastated by what had happened, and she was trying to understand why, because I didn't have a first connection to that story. It was purely the randomness of the event, the same randomness that had made me a stalking victim. And I read someone's interpretation of Michael in this film, that he is a metaphor for the vicious, unexpected cruelty that ordinary life can bring, and that's what bothers me the most. So I sort of get it, but it makes me angry at the same time when they keep asking the questions. I think often about that when we're doing these episodes, which of these is going to tip the balance into that territory for you? Because I know we tried the original Cape Fear, and that was too much. But we have these where it seems like maybe the antagonist is so out of the realm of the normal. Is that what makes it palatable in those cases? Where do you draw the line? Or is it just unpredictable for you? It's completely unpredictable. Some things I would think would bother me and they don't. And then others catch me off guard sometimes. But I would say that generally when something feels like it's rooted in some sort of reality, that can get to me more than a supernatural element. I love the first moment in the second part of the scene when they're in the house because we only see Laurie from behind first, just like Michael. And the podcasters are trying to make their case, but she's having none of it. And she shuts them down completely. There's nothing new to discover here. So when these characters are debating back and forth, is there anything new to discover about Michael and his crimes? Do you think that sentiment also applies to this concept and these characters? Is that the filmmakers maybe winking at us a little bit? Well, I don't think Laurie has learned anything new this whole time, but that's because she hasn't had to because she was right all along, you assholes. She is thoroughly vindicated, but at such an enormous cost, I think. She and Michael will never not be completely intertwined. It's only that that predator-prey dynamic will be fluid from here on. 
And so many of these callbacks and homages here are reversals with Laurie in Michael's place, like you mentioned, and vice versa. That's not the only time it happens. It comes up again and again, and it should be clear to all of us that the playing field has been leveled. A lot of hunted becoming the hunter business. What it makes me think of more than anything is what she's been through herself since that night in 1978. What was supposed to be a Halloween, just like any other, a bit of fun, a bit of mischief. And then this thing that she never asked for changed her life forever. And I've been watching these movies for 40 years now. And in that 40 years, at least a few times, I have taken some satisfaction in Michael dispatching some of these characters, the podcasters in this in particular. But it does make me think again about all those kids over all that time. And Buster Rhymes. <laughs> but <laughs> the function of the films interests me. Why do we want to see these kids, some of them very annoying, but some of them just innocent, put through the meat grinder? There are all the motivations that go along with horror movies that have been noted throughout the years, obviously. Puritanical ideas that sex has to be punished chief among those. So they commit their various teenage transgressions, but if we were to be completely honest about it, none of these are what amount to capital offenses. So why do we want to see that punishment doled out? And I think the most interesting thing to me about how all that works with this particular film is the cognitive dissonance and contradiction built into what some would say about these films and what this film itself says. There are those that would possibly make the argument that we watch these as a way to study evil, quote-unquote, to understand it a little better. In what way? I'm not sure. I do the same thing with true crime, obviously. To make some sort of sense of chaos, like we were just talking about a moment ago, sometimes? Yeah. But as an underlying premise of this film, at least as far as Laurie is concerned, is to strip all that away. Don't toy with it. Don't try to figure it out. Don't try to get inside it. You eliminate it, even if it takes your whole life. You kill it, and you be sure that you have done the job completely. Do you feel any of that conflict about what we're watching these for? Definitely, because I don't want to see the body count have to go up for that killer to have earned his or her ultimate punishment, meaning their death. It's interesting that you mentioned that about the kill it and be sure because you've talked before about horror being essentially a conservative genre, leaving everything to right itself at the end somehow. So is this then the most conservative movie? Essentially stamp it out before it even has a chance to grow. I don't think so, because I think at this point, it's also a therapeutic function. Not to mention, you already said there are two sequels. So there's that too. <laughs> I think the reason that I come back to these, or at least this one in particular, why I was so pleased to return. First and foremost, it's just so good to see Jamie Lee Curtis as this character again. She's the reason I come back, not these nameless victims. And then introducing her living as a parallel to Michael's captivity. I enjoyed starting from that point with each of them, thinking about which of them might actually be the most free. Well, I definitely didn't think this was a worthless exercise at all, even if they were winking at us or, I hope, making us think more deeply as we've been talking about. But essentially, I don't think we would ever come into the film if we weren't curious to discover, is there anything new? And I think we definitely have discovered new things here. 
So let's get into one of those new developments. This is Lori's daughter, Karen, and her granddaughter, Allison. And they're discussing whether mom has invited grandma to come to a family dinner. It was so good to see all of the Strode women, in fact. I mentioned how glad I was to see Jamie Lee Curtis, but this triumvirate of women is so well cast and they have such good chemistry. I love Judy Greer. She's a national treasure. And to me, the grandmother bond is such a great idea. That is a very specific, more pure relationship for me, at least. There's a very specific function there because in my history, grandma was always the one who came to get me out of trouble. I don't know if it was the same for you. The get out of jail free card. Mom has to provide discipline. Grandma is all, let the good times roll. Was it the same for you? Not exactly. But speaking from my experience, I know my mom was constantly surprised at what my grandmother Evelyn would do with and for me that my mom never got to experience. I think there's a different level of honesty that is acceptable and encouraged in this kind of relationship. And my mom always said if... I asked Evelyn to go knock over a liquor store. She would say, sure, let me get the keys. (laughs) So, but I wasn't really that much of a troublemaker, maybe in the same way that you were. I was always a really good kid, generally. I think my grandma was actually more a troublemaker than I was. Yeah, based on the stories I've heard, that's faux show. Now, there's a huge amount of uncomfortable family dynamics that we see at this family dinner because Lori shows up basically unannounced. She wasn't invited by Karen, but her granddaughter reached out and she came. But she's a mess. And Karen is pretty firm here. Is she unreasonable, do you think, to set boundaries? She's got a piece of language that I really respond to. You need help and you're not welcome here until you get it. How does this kind of language play to you within the film, as opposed to, say, if we were in the real world? It might be different if we, the audience, didn't know that Lori was right. She knows it's time to prepare. She starts testing the family. But I do think that sort of language is fitting in the sense that it expresses the frustration of dealing with this for decades and never knowing a quote-unquote normal life because of it. Does it encourage anything therapeutic, like getting revenge? No, it does not. It's really interesting because if we were in a different film, we would think... Yeah, Karen's got some points to be made here. I love something that Jamie Lee said when she's talking about Lori as a character. She said that absolutely, on November 1st, Lori went back to school. Her parents told her to do it, that was what was expected of her, and she goes essentially from one day being an honor student to being a freak for the rest of her life. No chance for therapy No chance to deal with it. No chance to talk about it. She didn't have the same tools given to her that Karen had. What would she have done in 1978? Transcendental meditation? I guess primal scream, maybe? I don't know. Est? Was that a thing (laughs) then? (laughs) Yeah. Thank God she didn't join a cult. That might have been the other place to go. Ah, but again, I disagree a little bit, maybe. Because we mentioned her place is more of a compound. She is a cult of one. Ah, good point. And instead of getting followers, she drives everyone away. We get to finally meet Allison's crop of friends. And they seem a lot different than Lori's crew from the first film. 
They've got different ways of expressing themselves and their speech and their dress. They don't seem like cannon fodder. The one major improvement, I think, in this versus the original, it falls under this category for me. No Annie. I was waiting for you to say that. <laughs> Seriously, though, I don't think of the trio of friends in the original Halloween as cannon fodder either, though. At least not in the way we think of kids in, say, Friday the 13th, part 40. You've got PJ Souls, who was iconic in that role, totally. And like Lori's group, these are good kids, it seems like. And I really like that McBride and Green choose them to retcon all of that information to remove the brother-sister story that isn't true and that he's not supernaturally powerful, at least not yet. We'll see what the sequels do. It is a classic piece of kids kicking around the mythology of the town they grew up in, and I really appreciate that aspect of it. Now, they pose a question that I also think is not necessarily unreasonable. Whether what Michael did back then is so bad compared to what we experience today, what their generation experiences regularly. We've got mass murders regularly. We're constantly exposed to violence. Do you think they have a different perspective on trauma, or is it just a way maybe to move forward? Yeah, mass shootings are certainly not a novel event anymore. I think it's interesting, though, that the first Halloween kind of appeared right when the prime serial killer period in America was beginning to crest. So that part of it probably plays different. You don't hear about those stories in the news the same way you heard about Bundy, Gacy all the time back then. And Dave, that character, he makes a lot of sense from an outsider perspective. A guy killed some people, he's incarcerated, end of story. Why would you think of him as any different from any other killer if you hadn't seen it up close? That really, for me, nicely illustrates the vast gulf between people lining up to be victims in these movies and the true believers. And Lori is definitely the true believer. She is getting ready for the transfer of Michael. She's got her finger on the trigger, waiting. And we're wondering, is she going to kill him when she gets the chance? And so Smith's Grove Sanitarium, they take this show on the road. If we ever come upon a bus in the ditch, in the fog, with people milling about on the highway, maybe with their straight jacket sleeves loose and flapping in the wind, we are continuing down the road. If someone tells you to run, run. Yes. Cedric the Entertainer told me that years <laughs> ago. I love here that Will Patton appears. He's such a welcome face, too. And this, to me, is who our Loomis surrogate is. The new doctor is a fan. He is not at all concerned with corralling this, Will Patton is the only authority figure that gets it and knows that it has to be stopped by any means necessary. That is Loomis territory. He and Lori would essentially be cohorts here. So is she going to extract the ultimate revenge? You know, we've talked about some revenge stories here lately, our last few episodes. And in this film, we've got multiple characters seeking revenge on different people in different ways. Whether they're aware of it or not, how does this revenge story feel for you in a woman's hands? This one's a little different for me because I don't feel that generally most of the time as much as I feel like it's in Lori's hands and she happens to be a woman. There's a distinction there that I would make. The one thing that I do think about specific to that, though, and how her story has played out is how many times over the years I imagine 
people have not listened to her story or taken it seriously because of her being a woman and the toll that that took on her character. Otherwise, she's kind of an interesting mix of maternal and then traditionally masculine characteristics. She's loving, but coarse. She's protective, but extremely tough most of the time. So that gender thing is not on my mind a lot of the time because I feel like she transcends that a bit. I disagree with you a little bit just from a personal perspective. I definitely see it as a woman's story. But I understand what you're saying because I think you, unlike a lot of people, don't buy into gender roles generally. At least not as they're traditionally sold to us, I would say. I feel like she's reclaiming the story. It starts out being about Michael. It's always about him. But she takes the focus and ends it. That's a very good point, and that is a significant shift in how these things go. So it's really nice, actually, to have one of these that stands the test of time over 40 years so we can see that evolve. When we look at these different familial relationships, we've got parents and children, in-laws, husbands and wives. Do you think they're telling the story of trauma well here? I think so, and I point to one scene in particular that is really, I think, my favorite in the whole thing. The conversation with Laurie giving Allison the money and urging her to go anywhere and do anything else that really hits me. I really feel the weight of 40 years of fear and constant stress and all the things that this one event took away from her all those years ago. She can't do it for herself, but maybe she can make it so that her granddaughter can. And I love that she refers to him as the shape at that dinner. How many times do you think Karen heard that word over her childhood? Speaking of Karen, what really strikes me here is showing how difficult it is to exist alongside another person whom you love imploding. I mean, you've been in that position with me. I've been in that position with you. So I really do think we get the full picture here. Mm -hmm. We understand that generational trauma. So shit's about to go down. The bus has crashed. The father and son, two new characters we don't know, show up, and this is the first time where a young child gets murdered. And boy, that is a tough scene. The kid's left on his own, and he does not come out the other end. We join up with the podcasters again for a moment. They're going through the cemetery, and we see Judith's grave here. So, we mentioned this earlier. Everything has been ditched that came after the first film. You're way more of an expert on Halloween than me. I've only seen the first three films. You've seen also the Rob Zombie reboots, I believe. Is mm -hmm. that correct? Yeah. How do you feel about that decision to let everything go? I'm going to pull an Eric along here. I say they ditched it and they didn't. As a pickup point for the narrative, yes, they did. But as much as they want to say they are going back to the original as the source and just picking up there... I feel like it's super clear that all the entries in the series, some more obviously than others, have contributed to the DNA of this. Even the Rob Zombie films, their contribution is this bluntness that you're talking about when it comes to killing and maybe crossing a line and having a child victim. The Crazy Doctor subplot, it feels like it's a holdover from the lesser sequels, maybe the influence of five or six creeping in, but I forgive that because of one idea that he espouses that I love. Tonight, so many possibilities exist. That's how I feel about Halloween, the event, the holiday, 
the film series itself, this is what I love. That's the point. The potential for mayhem and disorder when that veil between worlds is at its thinnest. Well, speaking of a thin veil, <laughs> I think about something that you mentioned in terms of the film, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. When you realize that all is standing between you and a killer is a screen door. Because that's how I felt when we get to the gas station, and it's the killings of the podcasters. Maybe even more than the opening sequence in the yard of the sanitarium, which I love. I'm so glad that they chose that for the trailer because it was so tense. But this is more classic Halloween to me. The gas station, always a good source for coveralls, a sartorial must for the killer. But I want to ask you a question about this. When you're watching this, it's so tense. How do you feel about this? Is the toilet a more vulnerable position than in the shower, for example? Definitely. She tries to hang on to that tiny door handle. <laughs> it's awful. I mean, and also, outside of the shower, imagine you're on the toilet trying to get away. Imagine the things that come out of you. It just seems <laughs> awful. Gross. It is so slow and horrifying here and those teeth god and i love that it's played a lot without music and the music comes in at just the right scariest times i mentioned how i felt about this a little while ago do you feel bad about enjoying seeing these podcasters getting their just desserts or at least that's what it feels like to me is this the line between quote-unquote normal people and horror fans so I think there's definitely some satisfaction that they finally understand that their glibness has been found out. But I do not feel good about the way they die. I don't feel good about how anybody dies in this. It's completely the opposite for me, which feels different than other films. There are some deaths here that I still really mourn. For example, spoiler alert, the sheriff. Well, Michael gets rid of them and he retrieves his mask and we hear him breathe for the first time. He is truly alive right now in a way that he has not been for 40 years. If you do what you love, you never work a day in your life, I guess. That made me want to throw up. Thank you. <laughs> well, Halloween night is here. Everything is hurtling towards this conclusion. And as Karen is still battling with her mother about what has happened and what needs to happen, as she sees it. Is it appropriate to ask, why can't Lori just get over it? We know what we know because we've seen everything. Again, as you mentioned, even though it's all retconned, we still have these other stories that we've experienced. Do you think we take this all with us as we view this film and Lori? I don't see how you couldn't. You can't unring a bell, basically. But I think... The short answer in terms of how everyone processes trauma is that everyone does it differently. So we're all bringing different things about this saga to this film, and we're experiencing it in different ways. Some people who have been through what you might consider far worse might handle it with less trouble, at least outwardly, and some might have considerable trouble with an event that might not seem nearly as traumatic. There is no accounting for individual psychology as it applies to grief and coping with trauma. But I think, as fans of the series, we come to this with a certain feeling in our hearts, and as this sheriff says, Michael Myers, loose in Haddonfield with a bunch of nutbags on Halloween night, 
What is not to love? When he says, I was there that night, we understand what he's talking about. (laughs) So let's get to the next horrible set piece. This is the long walk from the alley through houses and multiple kills. The big difference being, he makes a choice to not kill a baby. So there's still a line for them to cross in the sequels, I guess. Him roaming the streets getting warmed up this way is a fascinating sequence for me. One, what is everyone prepping with all these huge butcher knives in their kitchen in Haddonfield? It seems like every kitchen has one. I would assume that would be your favorite part. I don't think I have a knife as big as any of the ones that I've seen on display here. You don't yet. (laughs) But he's on the streets. It's Halloween. He's blending in. And these quick dispatches, I think, are exactly what you were talking about just a little while ago. Maybe they're even scarier than the ones that he lingers over. He's not taking the time to enjoy them like the characters that have made their way onto his radar because they're terrible or annoying. These underscore what you were saying, just how quickly and randomly your life can be ended, which is a different fear entirely and possibly a more terrifying idea for a lot of the audience. And I think Green really does a good job setting all this stuff up because he gives us those scary, empty spaces in the frame and then just leaves them empty. He doesn't do things that typical horror film directors do. A babysitter does actually get murdered, so it lives up to the title of the original all the way back 40 years ago, and chaos ensues. Lori arrives, she's yelling at people to get inside, but how does she not know that inside is more dangerous than outside? That, to me, is the scariest moment that one woman trying to close the blinds It's too late. She's dead already. So this violence in this film, it feels different to me than the original. It feels more extreme. It feels very up close, very brutal, very detailed. Like you said, he's not lingering and it just feels more random. It's not a vendetta on his part. It's a lot of wrong place, wrong time. Which, as I've said a couple of times already, it's this randomness that feels so horrifying. Does it strike you in the same way? It definitely does. Again, I point to this film as an evolution in this series, I think. No Mercy for Kids is kind of a change, I suppose. But then, what should be the cutoff? Do you draw a line between 16 and 13? 14 and 10? It's just a different era. That's one thing. And then, like I said, you've got a major contributing factor to upping that violence ante being the Rob Zombie Halloween films, because those are unbelievably brutal. So in a way, it's like I said in the beginning, it's paying homage to the original, and yet it's staking out a little bit of new territory. But it doesn't feel out of place. It feels a pretty cohesive whole to me, because a lot of vital elements from the original, they're back. The original shape, Nick Castle, he's here. And you've got the intangibles of body language of the shape, He's only physically on screen for one moment, but it is a big one. And I love that they saved that signature musical sting for that. It's the first time that Michael and Laurie actually see each other through that window when she's down on the street. And he gives that signature head tilt. He also did all the breathing ADR for Michael. Now, would you know it was me from how I moved if I was covered from head to toe? I think that's kind of tough to say because my only experience in that realm is when you put on your more elaborate Halloween costumes, including masks and clothing. And the way you start to move differently when you have those on, you might be able to fool me. 
Yeah, it might seem like a small thing, I think, but you can really feel when someone is physically wrong for the role in the other sequels, for instance. But I think James Jude Courtney, he did a great job exhibiting just the right physicality. And then there's a return to a great mask design, too, after years of what I felt like was failure. The mask is essential to this character. You have to get that right. I love the mask. We probably talked about this a little bit when we discussed the original Halloween, but I totally get the mask thing. All of my rotation of regular Halloween costumes, they do involve full over-the-head masks. And I've probably mentioned at least a little bit what a liberating feeling that is. It works on two levels. It's terrifying to me. <laughs> That's one. No, one, the anonymity alone is powerful. And it's easy to see that on a daily basis with a million other things. Just look at the things humans do on the internet when they have that cloak of anonymity. What they allow themselves when they think no one can see them or knows who they are. So there's that to start with. But then there's something else, and you see this in true crime files often, with the mask. It's not just anonymity. It is specifically about becoming someone or something else. A different person that is capable of things that you wouldn't normally be. It's a different thing when you are looking out of those eye holes. And this may sound a little crazy if you're not prone to be in costume very often, but give it a try and see how you feel. Nope, it's terrifying. <laughs> it grants you a certain license. If nothing else, just look at performers. I'm sure, for example, that you encountered a number of theater performers that once they were in full costume and makeup, they were completely different people from their civilian selves. And they probably said similar things about how liberating that was and how in normal life they could have never done those things they did while in character. Did you ever run into that? You know, I really didn't. And that's because I probably worked in more straight theater that we weren't doing incredibly elaborate plays. And we were pretty down and dirty as well. So I was very aware that these people were doing their job. Now, I would say, though, that there was an effect that you could see when someone was playing a particularly difficult character who had a lot of anger or sadness, that kind of stuff would carry through. But I never saw a complete transformation. I'm wondering, though, with your experience, have you seen that in musicians who specifically go on stage with a persona? Oh, definitely. And it's good and bad. And then there are some that are definitely that person all the time. Gigi Allen was Gigi Allen, no matter where, no matter when. But I think you see it in David Bowie, for instance, is a great example. Taking on a persona and amplifying what you are in a really great way. I would say going back to theater again, you have to remember it's eight shows a week. So it's the same thing that you're basically sort of exploring for four weeks to eight weeks when you're talking about a certain level of theater that I worked in. Hopefully you weren't going to write your master's thesis on <laughs> no. that. Aside from the shape and the body language and the mask, was there anything else that you were really glad to see come back? Yeah, there were a lot of things. Let's talk about that. This idea of fan service and all the callbacks and nods to previous entries. We talked about a few of them already. There's that visit to Haddonfield Cemetery. We get the fucking closet door. That closet door is iconic for Halloween. There's that nice callback to the classroom scene, including the off-screen voice of the teacher being PJ Souls, which I love. The ghost sheet draped over one of the victims is fun to see again. Him bumping into the kid on the sidewalk. I love it when her body 
isn't there and he's up on the balcony. We have the upright sit in the basement. We get a nod about once every 10 minutes or so, it feels like. Is that too much? Was it too much for you? It wasn't because I felt like they were deployed in interesting ways. For example, the sheet over the victim. It's not done for almost a disconcerting laugh here. It just feels so sad. Especially with this victim, the gender changed. And she's younger, too, it feels like. I feel that with all of them, and it really drives home that point of what is lost with these killings. Well, let's mention Vicky again here. It's Vicky and Dave, and they do get killed in the house. And the young boy that she is babysitting, Julian, he does get away. There's some really good comedy here, I have to say. And some actual love with the characters. Vicky and Julian, they adore each other. They're each other's favorite. So I'm going to tip my hand here. I'm going to ask you the question first. Who is your favorite character? It is impossible to choose after 40 years. Michael and Lori together are my favorite character. You cannot separate the two. That's incorrect because the answer is <laughs> Julian. That little kid is the best. He's played here by Jabril Nantambu. I love this kid. Now we're focused on Allison here for a bit. It's the big Halloween dance and she and her boyfriend have a bit of a twist. They're Bonnie and Clyde, but she's Clyde. He's Bonnie. And then he starts to act like a dick and we see him kissing some hoe and he has destroyed her phone. So worst case scenario, Michael's on the loose and her family doesn't know how to get in touch with Allison to warn her. Yeah, so she leaves with friend Oscar, who, unlike Julian, he's not the best, or at least this situation isn't the best. He misinterprets what's happening here with their relationship, and he oversteps his bounds. It's a nice guy, quote-unquote, moment, for which he is punished in the extreme. They talked a lot at the time about how this fit into the Me Too movement. Do you think this was the most obvious way that they addressed that? How did you feel about this scene? I guess I go back again to the point we were discussing earlier about how the friends feel different. I guess maybe they do more to me than you. I don't feel that the original friends were as benign as I think maybe you were suggesting. Not to say that they were the world's most terrible people. Do you have specific examples you're thinking of of the original crew? I do. It feels like a different level of experience. They all just felt older. I think you made that point. And to me, they felt more aggressive. I think that's the biggest difference here. The new friends, these friends, they just express themselves in a different way. It doesn't feel as pushy. And even Oscar's attempt to kind of make a move is also not particularly aggressive. It's more passive-aggressive, that's true, but he backs off. So maybe it's more me too, quote-unquote, because no one's a terrible dick? Even the boyfriend Cameron? I mean, it's not that bad? Mm. Okay. <laughs> that guy is the, if it's the 80s, the jock asshole at the ski resort. Okay. All right. There's a point to be made there. But he does go full in with the costume. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's me not thinking of the original in a specific way. Let's have everybody weigh in. See what everybody else thinks. Yeah, I think what tips the balance for me for Oscar is when he asks that question. It's kind of funny on one hand, but it's also kind of pathetic. 
Have you ever really liked a girl and you just couldn't have her? He says have. He doesn't say anything about her liking you. It's not equal. He's talking about her as a possession. That's a great point. And maybe it's more a comment of me that I'm heard things like that before. I'm a little bit more used to it. And the fact that he actually does back off is somehow a weird point in his favor. I need to rethink that. And at the same time, regardless of how you feel about him, his death is really terrible. Yeah, even though I'm not fond of him, it is terribly sad. Because it's his screams that Allison hears, and you know she's going to hear those for the rest of her life. The new trauma being established. So I started to wonder about this point. Do you feel like we have an answer to the question of how a crime like Michael's affects him? That question kind of stems from the new doctor's work, right? So maybe we shouldn't be taking our cues as far as which questions to ask from this cuckoo nutso Dr. Sartain. Because like I said before, he's a fan. He is not the new Loomis. And if you take Donald Pleasance's word for it, and I do, Michael is unredeemably evil. I think of it in the context of actual, prominent, real-life killers, and it's one of those things that every killer is different. Ted Bundy was relatively intelligent. Gary Ridgway was as dumb as a stump. Arthur Shawcross would only talk about a narrow range of his crimes, where Ed Kemper would talk about everything. You couldn't shut that guy up. Jeffrey Dahmer, to me, it feels like things might have never gone that way if one or two things had been different about his adolescence. But then Angelo Bono was such a bad person that he would have eventually killed someone no matter what. Carl Panzram is basically like (laughs) every Nick Cave song ever. So if I was to categorize Michael Myers as to which real-world slots he fits into, he should never be let out of prison, obviously. He's not so out of his mind that he's like Richard Trenton Chase just wandering around Sacramento naked and covered in blood because he doesn't know the difference between right and wrong. There is intent and understanding in what Michael does, and he would never be found guilty by reason of insanity just because of that. Look what he does with these bodies after he kills them. He's using the teeth as a device to frighten, which is a great choice. He's thrifty. He never throws a body away when he can stick it in a closet for a good gag later. It's a lot of extra work, but the payoff is worth it. It demonstrates premeditation, an understanding that it is wrong, a sense of humor even. He fully understands what he is doing. Do you think intent is the same thing as motivation? I think that's a very good question, actually. I think those are two distinctly different things. Motivation to me feels more primal where intent feels more surface. Yeah, I think of motivation as being something that goes back a much longer period of time. A thing you can't deny. An intent could be that thing that happens in the moment or as reaction to something that happens in the moment. I wanted to ask you about a little thing that happens here and if it felt to you like it did to me. Maybe not since you don't have such a connection to the series. But the doctor putting on the mask, it felt like a bit of sacrilege to me. Like, this is maybe the one place they've crossed the line. It's like Thor's hammer. Not just any clown gets to pick that up. It did feel a little bit wrong to me, too. Just kind of more left field than I felt comfortable with. Because everything else had been falling into line that seemed to be consistent with the entire feel and thrust of the film. But it sort of feels like an odd lethal weapon moment that he, you know, is going to start waving guns around at that point. 
Well, somebody's got to start waving guns around, because this is trouble in River City, capital T. And with what we've been shown of her compound, there has to be a showdown, obviously. You see a compound in the first act, you have to go to it in the third act. And speaking of guns, if Michael can drive a car, which is how he arrives at her place, why not use a gun instead of all of these knives? Is it just not on brand? Where would he have gotten a gun in all of this time? And where would he have learned how to use it? But I guess that's the same question with the car. Yeah. Where he would have gotten a gun would be all these police cars that he keeps ripping off. Oh, yeah. And murdered all the cops. Okay. I don't know the answer then. (laughs) Well, speaking of a little bit of levity here, there are some bits of comedy in this for sure. Some extended dialogues that are supposed to work at a comedy level. How does that comedy work for you? I think most of it works. It's good to have something like that to break the tension in a film like this. It's a time-honored tradition to have that after a really suspenseful moment. You need a release of some kind. Toby Huss, I love all the way back from Pete and Pete. He always makes me laugh no matter what. He doesn't even have to say a word. And at every juncture that a new character like that is introduced, him for instance, I'm thinking, is this the avatar for Danny McBride? And he's just one of many. Julian is the avatar for Danny McBride, as it turns out. For sure. Also the dancing kid who gets murdered earlier. But yes, yes, everyone is an avatar. Yeah, and he's actually Julian. Funny comic relief. I feel like that whole Bond Me discussion, that's definitely Danny McBride. Don't need to have that, though, in my opinion. If they had cast him in about five different roles in this with different costumes and makeup, that would have been just fine with me. No one can deliver that dialogue like he can. Well, at this point, we're at last finally hurtling towards the showdown. Allison is on her way to the compound. The rest of the family is there. And we know Michael Myers is at the gates. So how is it going to go down? One thing I want to point out that I really loved about the design of her house, the attention to detail they put into things like being able to methodically clear the house safely. Even something as simple as doors that open into rooms flush against the wall instead of leaving a space for someone to hide behind. It's genius. And then that Myers home dollhouse that is such an eerie touch as well. (laughs) Can you imagine growing up with that thing? Okay, wait a minute. I know the answer. You would love that. But Lori is obviously never going to be able to let this thing go. It's pretty stellar how they dispatch him. And I say they because it's not just a final woman, it's a final group, the three women. What did you think about that finale moment with Karen? She gets the gotcha moment. How important is that Karen essentially saves the day? At least she starts the sequence of events. I really like the choice and I like all the things that it implies, whether She was really down with this from the beginning, or she just absorbed all of this through osmosis. You can't help it if you're being inundated with this training all the time. But in terms of this whole flipping it to be the hunter becomes the hunted, I love how she exploits his Achilles heel. She has learned enough to know that his desire is to engender fear and exploit weakness. So that irresistible lure of blood in the water is what gets him, and she specifically springs that trap. I think it's a great choice. And I really do appreciate the three of them working together to defeat him, to spring this trap. I like to think that she is smart enough, because of the way that she was raised, to pivot as quickly as she does. 
all of this time, there's been no indication that he would come back into their lives, but he has, and she knows what to do. Yeah, that is a great point, because I know you and I both get so frustrated when we're watching films like this, horror films especially, where characters refuse to accept the reality of the situation and adjust to that and behave accordingly. And this is a great example of being able to do that. But... All said and done, we love this series so much, or at least I do, I know a number of other people do, do we really want to see him defeated forever and this to be it? I have to say, at the end, and I didn't even realize that you could hear him breathing at the end, that wasn't in my mind, so I was thinking, this was it, and that gives me pleasure. That gave me pleasure until I realized that more were to come. But hell with it. I enjoyed it so much. (laughs) I hope they even do better things in the second and third. I do like, though, regardless of what happens, Lori gets a chance to say goodbye. That's where we started in the beginning, and that's what we come down to in the end. So how do you feel about it? Well, like I said at the beginning, we can't be too precious about it. At this point, you already said there are 11 of these movies. So I'm not going to begrudge them numbers 12 and 13. I'm looking forward to them. It's been 40 years. Why stop now? Especially when they're using this one that I really liked as the launching pad into the next ones. Well, that leads directly into the next thing I wanted to ask. Thank you. Speaking about how we should regard the original and then a new story. I want to give you a little bit of background before I ask this question. So this is part of a review from RogerEbert.com. And the reviewer said, I walked into Halloween wanting to feel the magic of the original again in some form. Carpenter's film is one of my favorite films of all time. As much as I hate to say this, I'm not sure that all the filmmakers really understand what made the first film a masterpiece. Carpenter's movie is so tautly refined that the sometimes incompetent slackness of this one is all the more frustrating. And it goes on from there. So I completely disagree But my question is, did the filmmakers have a responsibility to make this one great in the same way that the original is? No, none whatsoever. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. They had a responsibility to make what they wanted to make. Artists should always satisfy themselves first, and if there's an audience for that, great. Now, they might have felt an obligation as fans, and that's fine. In that regard, they did a fine job, but this idea that an artist owes an audience something is one of the worst things about film culture today. It's for the birds. See it or don't see it, but it's a movie. It's not a corporation and you're not a shareholder. That's a dumb way to think about any of this. Fan entitlement is just the worst. Period. Well, let me get down off my soapbox now and ask you one last question before we get to the end here. Was it scary for you? Duh doy. (laughs) It was so scary because it came from this place of dread and this horrible place of trauma. Like I said, I sweated through my pants. I cannot look at the cover of the Blu-ray box. I have to turn it over so I don't see his face. Yes, I was scared shitless with this. Well, good, because that's what it's supposed to do. How about your recommendation? Do you have something scary for us there? Uh, In a certain way. (laughs) Okay. You know, I probably would have chosen Blue Ruin if we hadn't already discussed Hmm. it as an ultimate revenge movie. But I went with examining trauma instead, and I picked crowd favorite, 
High anxiety. Sophie's Choice. <laughs> did you really pick Sophie's Choice? I did choice? really pick Sophie's Choice. I'll explain why. Okay. First, though, Sophie's Choice is from 1982, directed and written by Alan J. Pacula. Rhymes with Dracula for Halloween. Yes. Adapted from William Styron's 1979 novel of the same name, and it stars Meryl Streep, Kevin Klein in his film debut, and Peter McNichol. Meryl Streep is a Polish immigrant with a dark secret from her past who shares a boarding house in Brooklyn with her tempestuous lover and a young writer. So Sophie's choice at this point, like so many other horror villains, has become a shorthand. If you were alive around that time, you understand what it means when somebody says Sophie's choice. It's an impossible. It's a hateful choice. If you haven't seen it, you probably cannot comprehend the depth and the breadth of this film, the trauma that she endured, and how those around her can't really comprehend it or even how she lives with it. Did you pick something less of a downer? I did. Sort of, I guess, now that you say that. I'm going to pick one of my other favorite recent examples of revisiting a 70s property to good effect, and I'm going to go with The Crazies from 2010. And that's directed by Breck Eisner, and it stars Timothy Oliphant and Rada Mitchell, and it's an update of the George Romero film from 1973. It's about a small town in Iowa that finds itself in the grips of a virus developed by the military that turns its infected victims into violent killers. I went to see this on a lark on $5 Tuesday at the Cinemark across the road here, and I got so much more than my money's worth out of that. They do a great job keeping the tension ratcheted up. There are a lot of good scares, and I think the most effective thing for me is what a genuine sense I get of how this is how this would go in one of these small towns like where I grew up. And I'm actually going to probably commit a little heresy here and say that it's not just apples and oranges with the original. I think this is better. And I love George Romero, but this is an improvement upon what he did, I think. So put this in your Halloween rotation. You won't be disappointed. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Sophie's Choice and The Crazies. And that brings us to the end of episode 142. First and foremost right here, we want to say a special thanks to our newest Patreon supporter, Nick Arroyo. Thank you, Nick. We appreciate that very much. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level, it gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. Also, for the spooky season, I am reading Edgar Allan Poe short stories over there as a thank you to everyone for supporting us. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter at Lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Drew Tavendale and the fine gentleman of Fuds on Film. Mike Scharf. Laura Cannon and the Fatal Films Podcast. Jesse Dampolo. Spencer Seams at the We Cut Heads Podcast. Mickey Chiechi and Andy Wolverton. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. 
You can find our show on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material at the website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. <laughs>